Okay, our premise that we started with. Now, let me go back even before that. Um, I am not a mental health expert. I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist here to say, here's what the mental health industry would like to help you understand to help you. Um, I am not that at all. I am two things. I am a teacher of the scriptures for 30 years, and I am a father of 10 children. Most of them have had mental health issues. Um, my brother ended his life when I was 16 and he was 12 with what I am totally convinced was an undiagnosed case of teenage suicide, or teenage depression, which manifested itself in anything that looked, in nothing that looked like depression. He wasn't in bed all the time. Um, and I just have wondered my whole life if my parents had recognized those signs of depression if he'd be alive today. And so what I bring to the table is the piece of the puzzle that I haven't seen a lot of people lay down. We ought to go out and get the very best professional help there is. I am a great fan in the mental and emotional health industry. I think they've done some tremendous things for my family, for my students, and I love that. We ought to seek as much help as we can. But you and I both know that the Lord laid out in the scriptures and in the gospel a lot of helps that often go unnoticed. My goal in this class isn't to bring the gospel, it isn't bringing mental and emotional world into the gospel, but to bring the gospel into the mental and emotional world. That's the purpose of this class, is what truths of the gospel if better understood and practiced, would help lift, certainly not cure, my mental and emotional anxieties. So is that fair to say that's the premise? Which is why it's being taught in a, ta taught in a chapel, not in a clinic. Uh, it's very appropriate that we're here gathered in a chapel to say, Lord, what are the principles of the gospel that will help me? So last week we began with a key premise a doctrine that I don't think is discussed enough in the church, but it's unique to Latter-day Saints. I have not found a church, a religion on the planet that espouses this doctrine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna count that as cheers, not boobs. The doctrine is found in section 88 where the Lord says the soul of man is body and spirit. And what our doctrine is, is that body and spirit are inseparably connected. We saw last week in the Word of Wisdom that the whole point of the Word of Wisdom is to improve our spiritual health, to improve our spiritual navel and the marrow in our spiritual bones, we take better care of our physical body. That's the essence, at least one portion of the Word of Wisdom. And those of you who have been to the temple, again, no one is talking about this. But those of you who have been to the temple and you stand at that bell to communicate with Heavenly Father, how are you connected? Through the navel. You are connected to God through the navel. A very clear to me reference to that idea of health in my navel 
God speaks to me through a navel and one major influence in that navel is the condition of my physical body. So we're going to build on that from here on out. What we drew last week is that my body and my spirit are inseparably connected. Spirit, physical body. And if there are pieces of my physical body like the emotional and the mental piece, then whatever affects one affects the other. The word of wisdom would suggest that the condition of the physical body affects the spirit. And we made the leap last week to say the condition of the physical body has a tremendous influence on emotional and mental health. And I would just testify of that principle with all of my soul. The lowest hanging fruit that I have power over to improve spirit, emotion, mental, physical, is to take better care of this instrument that we call the body. If your medication isn't working, look at your diet and your sleep. And that might help you understand why the medication isn't working because these are tremendously connected. Now, that being said, we could spend weeks there, but given the shortness of this class, I wanna now look at one of the phenomenon that piques my curiosity. I don't know if you've seen the stats, but Utah is high in depression. Religious societies in general are high in depression. And I've wondered why that is. And I don't know if I have a definitive answer. I think it's a complicated question. But here's what I have observed as having a front row seat in your lives for 30 years college and high school students. If these are connected, then misunderstandings about doctrine. If I misunderstand a truth, if I misunderstand doctrines of salvation that weigh me down spiritually, what effect will that have on my mental and emotional health? Now, it's not the cause of it, but if this is struggling and I have some spiritual concerns, can you see what that's going to do? My observation is some of the most misunderstood doctrines create a heavy weight on our soul. And if my spirit is being weighed down and I'm already having a tendency to depression or anxiety, what will that spiritual weight do? So my goal tonight is to talk about some doctrines that we need to understand. I am giving you permission tonight to unlearn a false doctrine and to learn a truth. I want to focus on this symbol. This is one of my absolute favorite symbols of the gospel, and it often goes unnoticed. Cherubim and the flaming sword. 
How many times have you heard that phrase, cherubim and the flaming sword? Every time you go to the temple, you hear God make reference to cherubim and the flaming sword. Throughout the Book of Mormon, numerous places in the Book of Mormon, it talks about cherubim and the flaming sword. Now, not to put anyone on the spot, but have you ever paused and said, why? Why does cherubim and a flaming sword get so much attention from the Father? I can't think of a better way to have Heavenly Father waving his arms and saying, pay attention to this doctrine. And quite often, we don't. So today, allow me to talk about what was Satan trying to accomplish in the Garden of Eden. I am grateful for the restoration because the Bible can't answer that question. It requires the restoration to answer the question, what was Satan trying to accomplish in the Garden of Eden? Does it strike you as odd when you go to the temple to find Satan as such a prominent figure in the story of the creation and the fall? What was he trying to do there? May I suggest Satan's plan had two parts, A and B. And A does not destroy the plan of salvation, so the Lord allows A to go forward. It certainly wasn't what was intended to happen, but it doesn't ruin the plan. So the Lord steps back and lets A happen. But B was stopped. Satan's part B was stopped. The Lord did not allow that. He knew what Satan was, up to, was, was trying to do, and he wouldn't allow Satan to succeed because part B would have ruined something. So the Lord says no. That is one of the most crucial things to understand is that the Lord stopped part B. Therefore, we should understand how Heavenly Father feels about the purpose of this life. So, should we do these? What's A and B? Now, A, you should be able to tell me because the Lord allowed part A. That is the story of what happened. Part A has to do with one tree. Part B has to do with the other tree. There were two particular trees in the Garden of Eden. One was called the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Both trees were in essence doors opening to another life. So plan A was to get Adam and Eve to partake of which tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, allow me to say this. We do not have time to talk about this tonight. But the plan was, Satan's plan was to get them to partake of it before it was time. I will testify, and the temple very clearly teaches, that the plan was to partake of that fruit. And that in the end, the Father would have given them the fruit. Long story short, Satan gets mad that he got punished for doing something that someone else didn't get punished for. So why would someone do what Satan did and not get punished for it? It's because it was, the, it was what was supposed to happen. So the plan was to get them to partake 
before its time. Kind of like the law of chastity today, right? What's Satan's plan today? To get you to partake before its time. Same idea. So now they've transgressed because they've partaken before its time. So what was plan B? What was part B to Satan's plan? Let's turn to the Book of Mormon. There's two places in the Book of Mormon we're going to focus, Alma 12 and Alma 42. Alma 12, let's start there, and then we'll go to Alma 42. Alma 12 is Alma to Zeezrom. Fascinating that they both kind of occur to people who are, shall we say, transgressing. All right, Alma chapter 12. Whoops, I want... Ah, that's not what I want. I want this one. All right. Alma chapter 12. Everyone turn there. Uh, Shoot. All right, we'll do the unmarked version. Okay, Alma chapter 12. Let's start in verse... 21. Now, got a little background. This is Zeezrom trying to contend against Alma and Amulek, right? Zeezrom is asking a lot of very difficult doctrinal questions to trip him up. Questions like, is Jesus the Father? What's the answer to that? Yes and no. Is there one God or many gods? Yes, and no. Zeezrom is specifically asking questions to try and trip him up, very complicated doctrinal questions. Now, Amulek, at the end of chapter 11, has talked about a resurrection, a universal resurrection, that our bodies are going to be restored and we're going to live forever. So Zeezrom, trying to trip him up, says, "Um, wait a minute. Um, Amulek just said we're going to be resurrected and live forever. So then what meaneth the scripture that says God placed cherubim and a flaming sword on the east of the Garden of Eden, lest our first parents should enter and partake of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever? And thus we see that there was no possible chance that they should live forever. See what he's trying to do? Amulek just said we're going to live forever, but God stopped them from living forever. Now, totally different doctrines, and we'll take it another time. But... This is where Alma says, okay, this, that's what I was about to explain. This is the thing that I was about to explain. Now we see that Adam did fall by the partaking of the forbidden fruit, according to the word of God. And thus we see that by his fall, all mankind became a lost and a fallen people. So part A was get them to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil before it's time. Part B. Ready? Now I say, if it, I say unto you, that if it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, after A, if Satan rushes them over and gets them to partake of the tree of life, then what happens in this case? God becomes a liar and we take God out. We just took God out of the plan of salvation. So 
I'm going to I'm going to make God a liar and take him out of the plan of salvation. Now, what else does it do? Not only would that have taken God out of the equation, but more significantly for our discussion today, what else would have happened if they had partaken immediately of the tree of life? Let's go to Alma chapter 42. We just did 12. Now let's go to 42. So A, God becomes a liar and we take him out. Now, Alma 42, starting in verse 5. I'll let you digest it. What happens if they immediately partake of the tree of life? They will, because using this language, tell me what happens. There is no space for repentance. No one gets a space for repentance. He strips the entire world of a mortal experience. He takes away our space for repentance. And if you remove our space for repentance, what does that do? It makes the whole plan void and frustrated. So tell me what God stopped. I will not allow someone to take away your space to mess up and make mistakes. I won't let someone take away the learning, growing, falling down, making mistakes, doing dumb things, learning from them, and then getting better, better period of your life. He said, I won't let someone take away your space for repentance. And how did he do it? Cherubim and the flaming sword, right? So tell me what that picture, what's that symbol? The symbol of cherubim and the flaming sword is the message that God would not allow you to not have a period of time to make some mistakes. What does he call that period of time? Let's go back to Alma. I want to I want to do it in both of these, but let's start in Alma. Let's go back and do Alma chapter 12 again. What does he call that period of time? It's a beautiful phrase. What does, what does the Book of Mormon call that period of time? A probationary state. And thus we see that death comes. Nevertheless, there was a space. And I want to emphasize this word. Granted. God granted you a period of time to learn and grow. He gives you a whole bunch of do-overs. How many do you need? How many do-overs do you need? You got them. I grant you a space to make mistakes. Unfortunately, here in the United States, this word 
has, this word has taken on a negative connotation, right? Probation means proving to everyone that you're good enough. And that's almost the opposite of what this means. Let me give you another probation. Anyone ever gotten a new job? And when you're new on the job, I one time was hired by a company and when I was new, they called me, they said I was in nesting. I loved that phrase, I'm in nesting, like a bird in a nest, right? What does that period of nesting mean? But what, is it, what does it mean though? What's the is essence here? When you first get hired, it means we're not going to fire you for doing the very things that we would fire other people for. We're going to be what with you? We're going to be very lenient because what do we expect? We expect you to mess up. We expect mistakes, but we expect growth and improvement. That's the probation state we're talking about. You get hired by a company and they say, look, we know you're new, you're making some mistakes, but don't do that again. Oh, okay. You're on probation. We're granting you leniency because you're new and you don't know, and we're going to allow you a time to grow and change. That's nesting that's probation god has granted you a period of probation in which he is super lenient as you learn and grow god has granted now go back to alma chapter 42 i want you to see this again the repetition i think is significant this time it's in verse 4. It's the question that led to the discussion. Alma 42, to his son Corianton, who's made a major mistake, right? Does anyone know what happens to Corianton after that? Corianton went and hired a prostitute in the mission field. Definitely against the rules. You definitely don't do that when you're a missionary. Now, yeah, quickly get sent home and then sent, to, sent straight to the bishop's Yeah, office. your membership is in... But anyone know what happens to Corianton? I'll give you that homework. You find out what happens to Corianton and the rest of the mission. Does he turn around? Does he change? Did he learn? Did he grow? Or does he rebel and leave the church for the rest of his life? You figure that out. But in having this discussion with him, he says... And thus we see that there was a time granted. There was a time granted unto man to repent. A probationary time. A time to repent and serve. Now here's my theory. Satan's plan B was spoiled. He wasn't allowed to take away all of our probation. So I think he came, up, he came up with a new, an alternate plan B. I think Satan has an alternate plan B and his alternate plan B is to get into your head and convince you that you have to be perfect so that you take your own probationary state away. If he can't take away all of ours, he's going to try and take away each of ours. By having you do what God wouldn't do. 
instead of granting yourself a time to be imperfect. You don't, do you? We are so hard on ourselves. Now, I would dare say that one of the biggest culprits to adding to our mental and emotional strain is the stress that Latter-day Saints put on themselves to be perfect, to be good enough. And we don't grant ourselves a time to mess up and to grow. If you treated me the way you treat yourself, you would be the worst neighbor in the whole world. Do you agree? If you held me to the standard that you held yourself to, I would never measure up. But you are kind to me. You grant me more of a space to make mistakes than you grant yourself. And I think that's Satan's alternate plan B. Elder Holland in that great talk about broken vessels called it toxic perfectionism. That's the right one. But he talks about toxic perfectionism, right? And what is toxic perfectionism? Well, let's break it down. I'm not blank enough. enough. And it's toxic because you are stripping yourself of something that God granted and fought to grant. If God wouldn't allow Satan to take away our probationary state, why are you allowing him to convince you to take your own away? And suggest that you have to be perfect. So let me, in conclusion, just walk you through a series of scriptures about what Heavenly Father's realistic expectations are. First, let me teach a doctrine that sometimes we don't think about. Which Bryce Dunford is going to be judged by God? Which Bryce Dunford? All of them? Collectively? He's going to start at eight years old and he's going to march through every age I had and he's going to judge me. That's our vision of eternity. That's what our vision of judgment is. Every time I've ever asked anyone to describe judgment day, they talk about judging their entire life. Sixteen-year-old Bryce is not going to be judged. 16-year-old Bryce is not going to be judged. 20-year-old Bryce. 54-year-old Bryce is not going to be judged. It's not about what you, you did wrong. It's about who you became. Who, which Bryce Dunford is going to be judged? The one standing in front of him that day on Judgment Day. That's the Bryce that's going to be judged. Everything else will be judged in what sense? How will 16-year-old Bryce be judged? In terms of what I learned then and what I became because of it. So what if I did something really bad at 16? 
and it changed me and I vowed I'd never do it again. And it became a core part of my identity that I never ever made that mistake again. What happens on judgment day when the one standing in front of him is judged? That event at age 16 is simply a part of what I became. Let me show you a series of scriptures. This is, I'm going to do all of these, bear the repetition, because I just want to bang them over your head and convince you that that's what the Book of Mormon teaches. First Nephi chapter 10. Let me show you the chain. Ready? First Nephi chapter 10. Right in the beginning, notice how it's almost every author of the Book of Mormon. Nephi, Jacob, Mormon, and Moroni. It's fascinating that those four, those are the major authors of the Book of Mormon. Nephi, Jacob, Mormon, and Moroni. So let's start with Nephi. First Nephi chapter 10, right at the very end. Notice the tense here, ready? Therefore, remember, O man, for all thy doings, thou shalt be brought unto judgment. Future day. Therefore, if ye have sought to do wickedly, that's past. If on that future day you have sought to do wickedly in the days of your probation, then you are. You are found unclean. You are. So who's he judging? The one standing in front of him. Well, if that wasn't the case, then literal prophets like Paul and Alma would be consigned to hell. And thank goodness. That's right. Notice he continues. Then you are found unclean before the judgment seat of God, and no unclean thing can dwell with God. It's not who you were. It's who you are. Are. Okay, jump to chapter 15, 1 Nephi chapter 15. And who you're becoming. Who you are on that day, that's what I meant. Who you are on that day of judgment. Go to chapter 15. Notice this one, 33. Wherefore, if they should die in their wickedness, they must be cast off also. Then jumping forward, they must be brought to stand before God to be judged of their works. Now, on that day, if their works have been filthy, they must needs be filthy. What matters is what you are on that day. If they be filthy... They can't dwell in the kingdom. So what if I was filthy, filthy, but I'm not filthy? Can I dwell in the kingdom? What if I made a really, really big mistake, but I'm not filthy? I learned, I grew, I, grew, I changed. Do you see the concept of judgment? If you drop some in the mud, but then you wash it immediately, is it still, is it still dirty? Or do you now consider it clean? But in our mentality, is that what we think of Judgment Day? We don't, do we? We think of Judgment Day as everything's going to be judged. Every mistake I've made. That is not what the scriptures are teaching. Um, just like 
reading the scripture and um, like the first example that came to my mind was um, when I was doing baptisms for the death of the Los Angeles Temple, um, I'd sit next to converts that have like gang affiliated tattoos on their arms and probably like attempted drive-by, attempted murder, selling drugs. Um, I actually have a cousin who's a gang member um, and now he's like a father of two children and it was just really touching to see that these people like left that life behind and they want to follow Jesus and they want to change their lives even though they had done some pretty horrible things. All that like, matters is what we're becoming. That's granting yourself a probationary estate. You, I, so my question then is if you are at judgment day and you are found unclean, like what then? Like isn't the atonement supposed to, you know, cleanse you? True, but you're unclean because you don't want to be clean. And how many chances did he give you to be clean and you chose not to? So maybe we answer this question next before we uh, let's do this. And that brings up the next question. But let me just show you these scriptures. I want you to show you how many. So that's two from Nephi. Let's go to second Nephi nine, which is Jacob. So we've got the second major prophet of the Book of Mormon. And Jacob says the same idea. Notice. Speaking of judgment, eternal world. They who are righteous on that day shall be righteous still. And they who are filthy. So how many chances did they have to take advantage of the atonement and be changed? And on that day, after all those chances, they are filthy. They will remain filthy still. Okay, now jump all the way to the end of the Book of Mormon. Let's do Mormon chapter 6. So that's Nephi, Jacob. Now go to Mormon chapter 6. Oh, come on. This is Mormon. Now, anyone know when he dies? Seven. Seven is his last chapter. Mormon is gone after seven. Chapter eight, verse one, I'm Moroni. So this is his second to last chapter. And he says, everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to their works. But in what sense am I going to be judged according to my works? Is he going to go back and mention all the bad stuff I ever did? No. If it so be that you are the man standing in front of Christ on that day of resurrection, if you are righteous, then you are blessed. It doesn't matter what I did as much as what I learned from that and I became. Let me just do one more. Let's go to Mormon 914. This is Moroni. I just wanted to show you this. Sorry, not Moroni. Mormon 9. Not Moroni 9, but it's, the, it's Moroni who's writing. And he says the same thing. He that is filthy shall be filthy still. He that is righteous shall be righteous still. He that is happy shall be happy still. And he that is unhappy shall be unhappy still. 
It's what you did to get there. Um, since we're all, we, we will all be resurrected before, before we're judged, don't we also kind of have an idea of what glory <laughs> is because of yeah. You just wake up and say, okay, uh, this is a good sign. This is a good sign. I'm feeling good about this, right? I got a, res- I got a celestial body. You're right. No surprises, right? Why will it not be a surprise? Because of my whole life has been headed that direction. My whole life. So let me end with two interest, fascinating scriptures about the mentality that a heavenly father has who has granted you a probationary state. What mentality does he have? These are very reasonable expectations that we often don't grant to ourselves. Let's turn to Jacob chapter 5 to the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. That was a marvelous influence. When, when Lehi finally gets the brass plates and he reads them, what's the first thing he talks about? The allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. That's the first thing he mentions as soon as he gets the brass plates. He recognizes that he was a branch that got taken off. So turn with me to the very end. Go to Jacob chapter 5. Now, let me point out what kind of God we have. What kind of being is your heavenly Father in terms of your mistakes, in terms of falling, doing dumb things? Now, there comes a point when the whole vineyard has gone bad, right? It's kind of the apostasy period because the, the, the allegory talks about Israel during the apostasy. But it also applies to me individually. There comes a point where the whole tree has gone bad. And then he wants to fix it and help it to grow good fruit. Now you tell me what kind of God this is. Ready? As they, what's they? The good and the bad as they begin to grow. You shall clear away the branches which bring forth bitter fruit according to the strength of the good and the size thereof. Don't clear away the bad all at once. That is not his expectation because that doesn't work. And any parent who thinks they can clear away all the bad all at once has learned this sad lesson that it doesn't work. Lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft and the graft thereof shall perish and I lose the the trees of my vineyard for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore ye shall clear away the bad according as the good shall grow. What kind of God is this? Now, can I be honest? Can I, you be honest with me. What kind of God is this? Here's the God of Jacob chapter five, and here's the God in your head. Are they the same being? Odds are they're not. Now, which one is not heavenly father? This is heavenly father. 
if you would be as patient to yourself as he is, it will take a weight off your shoulders. One more. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 117. Oliver Granger. Oliver Granger was asked to stay behind in Kirtland, Ohio, and sell the property belonging to the church, belonging to the First Presidency. Now, who's left in Kirtland, Ohio? Just the apostates. Are they going to pay top dollar for anything the First Presidency owned? Is Oliver Granger going to succeed? He is not. And does the Lord know it? Yes. And it's kind of like the idea of being perfect in mortality. You're not going to do it. So the Lord says, I remember my servant, Oliver Granger. He remembers me. Verily I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Therefore, let him contend. Go try. Do your best. Let him contend for the redemption of the first presidency of my church. And what's the word? When he falls, not if. When he falls. When he falls. He shall rise again. For his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. What kind of God is that? What's he saying to you? You measure how far you've gone and how far you haven't. I guarantee everyone in here is stressed out about where I'm not, where I should be, what I should have done and haven't. All of you are measuring which one? Increase. What does your heavenly father measure? The number of times you get up. The number of times you get up and try again. That is more sacred to him than where you would be today if you had not fallen. The number of times you got up is more sacred to your heavenly father than where you are. Stop measuring the increase and measure the sacrifice. Measure the times you got up. Grant yourself a probationary state. Grant yourself a time to make mistakes and don't beat yourself up over it. Learn, grow, wash yourself off. Be smarter this time, but don't sit there and dwell on the fact that you fell. And if you hadn't, you'd be there. Dwell on the fact that you got up. That is Heavenly Father.
my prayer for every one of you is that this God be the one in your head and that you remember this symbol. Cherubim and the flaming sword. That he would not allow Satan to take that away. He can't be pleased when you take it away. And you are hard on yourself. And you're unwilling to grant you what he was willing to grant you. Embrace your mortalness and understand that we get a chance to make some big mistakes even. Because you know what? The guy that fell is not going to stand before God on judgment day. The guy that fell is the guy that got up who became the one who will stand before God on judgment day. Much smarter, much wiser than any of them that went before. Of that heavenly father, I testify and pray that you will unlearn some false doctrine that your enemy has tried to convince you is true. It is not. You are not expected to get rid of all the bad all at once. And more sacred to your heavenly father is the number of times you get up. Now, if you truly believed that, would it lift you mentally, emotionally, spiritually? There's the doctrine. I testify it's true. I testify that God has granted you a probationary state and just plead that you will grant your own, that you will grant yourself a lot of grace and leeway because he has. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.